It's page 1674 and I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to that and follow along. Um, this will be the last time we look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, just in case you're worried how long this is going. Um, and whilst you're turning, uh, just a couple of short uh, comments. One is uh, to all the men who came to the men's breakfast, um, thank you for your vibrant discussion. Um, and uh, for those of you who think you should actually do something about what you learned, um, you might want to take one of these and start praying for some of the issues uh, that are, I guess, facing. There's some good news. Um, Christians were apparently in Western Australia not allowed to foster children, but a court case ruled that Christians can do so. Uh, obviously, we're dangerous people. Um, and then birthdays. It's Katie's birthday on the 15th of Feb, Regina's birthday also on the 15th of Feb, uh, George's birthday, George Savides, on the 16th of Feb, Prima's on the 17th, and Arnon's on the 18th. There was something going on in February. Um, okay, why don't we pray and then we'll come to our text. Our Heavenly Father, we come again, uh, not just to words, not just to uh, commas or uh, different punctuation marks, but we come uh, to the Word of God. Uh, we come to that which you have spoken. Uh, we come to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who is risen from the dead and uh, made Lord and judge over all. And even as we come to sit uh, to consider this word, we don't sit on top of it to check out if it's true. We actually sit under it uh, because this is where uh, the Lord Jesus Christ rules. Uh, he rules through his word being declared and our hearts being in submission to it. And uh, we're told, Lord, that uh, your word uh, will accomplish that uh, which uh, you have purposed. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, uh, your people will be encouraged and made glad, and as the, sing as the hymn writer says, and that sinners will be made sad, and that your Holy Spirit would convict uh, us of our sin. And we pray that you would draw near and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of things on the pulpit here this morning, so hang on with me as I move everything. Okay, so I don't know if you know, we looked at Luther last week and considered something of his life. One of the things I didn't mention was that uh, he often struggled with doubt and even depression. Um, once his wife, which has been uh, widely known, his wife dressed up in clothes that were fitting for a funeral and uh, Luther looked at her and wondered why this woman had come up with the crazy idea to wear funeral clothes and in his usual, uh, I suspect, abrupt way asked her, why are you wearing what you're wearing? And her answer was simple, you behave as if God is dead. And so I thought I would dress for the funeral. Uh, this snapped Luther out of his misery. Uh, possibly only for a short time. But, but what we do find shocking is that a man like Luther uh, struggled and doubted uh, if he was saved. Um, I suspect, though, in modern Western Australian Christianity, 
This is a much more common concern. Uh, I suspect there are many of us, it's the $64 question for so many, am I truly saved? Am I really a Christian? Uh, can I be sure that God will take me to heaven? Um, it's easier to say this statement from the pulpit. Um, it's a lot harder to get rid of those doubts. It's a lot harder to rid yourself of that uh, dark feeling of uh, being condemned by God. And, and so there's no surprise really that if you go through the Bible, uh, there are really many passages that speak about uh, Christian assurance, that actually give Christians comfort and uh, show them why they should be looking to God and trusting in the Lord Jesus and not looking to themselves. But for this morning, we're not going to go and look at all these different passages uh, that uh, teach us uh, how a person can have Christian assurance. What we're going to do is look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, one more time for the last time. And as we go through it, we'll look at it through the lens of Christian assurance. We're going to look at it and see, does it say anything about eternal safety uh, for a Christian? Now, this is not the right way to look at a text, as some of you guys especially will come and speak to me. I get that. You actually come to the text and let the text tell you what the text is all about. You don't start off with the topic and then go and look for the text. But we've looked at what the text is all about. And as we've looked at it over many weeks, what we've found is possibly there are certain strands and what I've found, certain strands of thoughts and certain words and uh, to make sure we don't get distracted, I've left them on the side this morning. I'd like to bring them all together and just think about just how complete the saving work of God is and just how much of an encouragement it should be to you. Uh, if you have been saved, that this work is not something that is a flash in the pan experience that you're having today. It is a complete work that will last into eternity. Let us look at the passage. The first point uh, we can be sure we are saved because God is gracious. Now, I've already defined that word grace. And if you're a visitor, uh, grace is that undeserved, that unmerited, that unearned favor of God. Uh, grace is more than mercy, isn't it? It goes one step past mercy. Mercy holds back punishment of the guilty. Uh, grace actively loves an enemy. Um, now, some of us would probably uh, talk in this way, and deep down in our minds, we're sort of thinking, well, really, how different is God to a doormat? Um, he sees a lawbreaker, and he just ignores it. He uh, hears his opponents mock him in public, and um, he does not get angry. Instead, he loves them. Um, and... If you study verses like Matthew 5 and verse 45, it not only confirms it, but it says we should be like that. If you go to Matthew 5, it says Jesus makes, uh, or God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so we should love those who are evil. Uh, and we need to be clear, don't we, when we're speaking about grace uh, Matthew is speaking about what we call a general grace that God shows to the whole world. Uh, theologians call it common grace. 
Uh, God is kind to sinners, all sinners, all of us, whether we have actually bowed our knee and responded to God or whether we remain neglecting God and rejecting God. Um, and this is only for a time, but eventually time will run out. Uh, and when time runs out, those who have neglected and rejected God will face judgment and eternal punishment. Um, Paul's not speaking about common grace in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Uh, look at verse 4 and 5 and let me read that, those verses to you. Um, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. There's that word, by grace you have been saved. You see, here he's speaking about saving grace. Uh, this grace is not extended to everybody. Uh, this grace is only extended to those whom God chooses. Uh, God, because of his own good nature, um, uh, chooses to take some of his opponents and turn them around from being those who oppose God to make them sons and daughters of his. Uh, these enemies actually do nothing for God uh, that makes God choose them. They're not special in any way. Uh, they don't look the part. Uh, no, only because of God's gracious character, only because of what is in God, uh, does it result in God delivering some men and women uh, from having to face the wrath of God and he brings them into eternal safety. Uh, this is infinitely more than common grace. Um, because of saving grace, you and I, who are sinners, uh, we can be restored to God. Uh, folks, uh, saving grace is selective, true, but it's also effective. Um, l let me just show you what grace, uh, the grace of God looks like when it d works to save someone. You see, it starts your salvation and then it eventually brings your, completion, your, your salvation to completion. Paul has been arguing this right from the beginning of Ephesians. It's not just Ephesians 2. If you go back into Ephesians 1 and even verse 3, you'll see he's arguing this right from the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You, you see, this is the first spiritual blessing, God choosing us. A and this was done before the world was made. The timing of this verse is essential, because the timing proves that God's choice was totally free. It did not depend on anything we could do, because we weren't there. We were not even created. We could not have earned anything. In fact, if anything, the verse suggests there's something wrong with us, even from the day we start. Because when he chooses us, he doesn't choose us out of a blank sheet. He chooses us, quite frankly, to be holy and without blame. The obvious inference is that we must be unholy and with blame from the day we are born. Um, now, what are we chosen for? is the question. Are we chosen to be athletes? Are we chosen to be wise mathematicians or scientists? 
Are we chosen to be slaves or middle management? No, the next verse tells us we're predestined uh, to the adoption as sons. Um, we've been chosen to be children of God. And it's all through Christ. Let me read that verse. Predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. Uh, and, and so we're made these children of God through Jesus Christ. We're, we're brought to God, we're chosen in Jesus Christ. It's all because of Jesus. It's got nothing to do with us. We deserve zero credit. Saving grace, folks, is not this passive doormat that says, do what you want. Saving grace is active. It's loving. It's thoughtful. In fact, it drives the saving plan of God. Uh, notice how grace, saving grace does even more than just choosing us. Uh, Paul goes on and says it even redeems us, results in our redemption and purchases our forgiveness. Go back again to Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You see, grace sent Jesus to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, you and I were not born. Uh, we could do nothing. Uh, once again, Romans 5.8, Paul says it this way. He says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he follows it up in verse 10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Uh, saving grace does much more than just vaguely have good feelings. It results in the choice of sinners and then it results in paying the price for their sin. Uh, and it's a bit sad because uh, particularly I, I come from India and if you go back to India the word grace is often used in the same way as a non-Christian uses the word luck. Um, we say, by the grace of God, I got this car. Uh, or you'll hear someone say, by the grace of God, I did not have an accident today. Um, and we think that if we describe every event in our life with this prefix, by the grace of God, that, then we must be Christians. Folks, saving grace does not get you a car. Saving grace will not find you a wife. Saving grace starts off with God choosing you to be his child. Then saving grace sent Jesus to die for your sin. And saving grace then followed this up by sending God's spirit to come to you and make you alive and make you aware and make you enlightened to the fact that Jesus Christ and his saving work can actually save you from your sins. Look at once again, we go back to Ephesians 2 now and verse 5 of chapter 2. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, now why does God do this? What, what causes God to just out of the blue be kind to some sinners? Well, we're told in verse 7 that he does it to placard, 
to the whole world something about his own character. He wants everyone to see on a massive billboard that he is gracious. Um, God is wanting to draw attention to the fact that even though there's so much sin in the world, uh, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten his creation. It doesn't mean that he is not loving. No. Uh, he turns people to himself. And each one of us become living evidences to this world that God is in fact gracious and he transforms sinners, fallen sinners. And he does that now and he will do that to prove even in the ages to come that he is gracious. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, if God plans to bring attention to himself in the ages to come, well then, if he saves us now, we can be sure, folks, that we will remain saved so that every age to come will most certainly see the placard of the evidence in your life that God is gracious. You can be certain your salvation is safe because it does not depend on you. It depends upon God. It depends upon the fact that God must declare that his character is totally gracious. That's the first thing we pick up in Ephesians, 1, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. The second thing we pick up is that we can be sure we are saved. Uh, I think most of you know that parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you know, Jesus was speaking to these Pharisees and he told them to love their neighbors and one of them thought he was a little smarty pants and he said, uh, I'll try and avoid my responsibility and I'll just ask who is my neighbor. Uh, what he was trying to do was uh, find an angle to limit who he should love. He was hoping, I think, if I can only love my family, uh, I think oh, that'll be all right, it's reasonably comfortable. Uh, but even that's a bit dodgy. Um, and then he thought maybe if it's not my family, maybe my next door neighbor would be fine. And they're a pain, but I'll make an effort. But worst case scenario, I don't mind loving Jews, but don't make me love the Gentiles. And so he puts out this question to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And to expose his selfishness, uh, Jesus tells him a story of this Samaritan. And most of us think the moral of the story is be nice. Be nice to everyone. Uh, but this is not the moral of the story. You see, Jesus wanted to know, to the Pharisee to realize he's not nice. He wanted the Pharisee to realize that he could not freely and purely love anybody. Not even his family. We always say we love so-and-so, but we have ulterior motives. I love so-and-so because they love me. I will love this person in this way because I know if I do, then they'll respond in this way back. I'll have John over for dinner. Why? Because I know John will always have me back. Um, and if we don't have an ulterior motive, well, we muck it up anyway because when we do something nice, we brag and we tell everybody I filled the box with rice and chickpeas. I made sure I checked the right brand. I got the right brands, and I did that. 
there's something nice about me. Now if you don't know the story of the Good Samaritan, I'll just tell you. There's this Jewish guy traveling north from Jerusalem uh, towards Samaria, in a, which is like enemy territory. And he gets beaten up by thieves and he's left, we're told by the scriptures, to be half dead. Uh, I don't know how you're half dead, but I suspect he was near death. Uh, two Jewish religious leaders walk past their own countryman. They see him, and rather than stop to help, they just avoid him and keep going. But then one bloke from Samaria comes, and he's really an enemy of a Jew. And as an enemy of a Jew, you would think he would run a mile, but instead he stops and he helps this half-dead enemy. Notice what he does from Luke 10 verse 34. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Uh, this was grace, isn't it? Grace loves someone who cannot do anything back for you. Uh, grace loves even the half-dead. Uh, grace loves your enemy. But this was not enough because the next verse tells us he did more. The next verse tells us on the next day when he departed he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again I will repay you. You see he took full responsibility to care for this half dead person and was happy to pay for whatever it needed just to restore the man to full health. You, you see what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying you don't love your enemies this way. You are not the Samaritan in the story. He, he's saying only God loves his enemies in this way. Only God will do all that is needed to save sinners, his enemies, fully. Only he rescues them and brings them to total health or complete safety. This is exactly what that word saved means. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. There's that word through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. You see being saved means to be rescued from danger and brought into safety. It means to be sick and to be restored then to full and complete health. The word saved is a passive word. It's not speaking about you doing your own saving. No, it's talk, talking about God doing the saving for you. We do nothing. And to emphasize the point, it's obvious Paul says, this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now you might be uncomfortable this morning with all of this grace talk. And you might be saying, well, I don't know if I'm pretty happy about God doing everything. Um, you see, I, I, I can see how God sent his son to die on his cross. But didn't he just make an opportunity for me to be saved? And he just gave me the option if I want to be saved. So now I get to make a decision and I get to choose if I want to be saved or not. And I need to go home and sit down and really focus hard on the Bible and muster up some faith 
and put my faith in Jesus. And then perhaps maybe I might even sit down and think, if I only let Jesus into my heart, well then I will be a Christian. Uh, you, you see, you might have been like me. You might have been taught Revelation 3 when you were growing up. Uh, and Jesus is speaking to the Laodicean church. And he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And perhaps you were taught as I was taught, Jesus is a perfect gentleman. Who could argue with that? He treats us with dignity. Of course, who can argue with that? I deserve dignity. He knocks on the door of your heart. And so we get to choose. Should I let him in or can I leave him out? Uh, folks, Revelation 3 is written to a church. It's written to Christians who have already been made alive. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul is speaking about what we were before we became Christians, when we were non-Christians. Quite frankly, he's saying to you, you were born a non-Christian. As a, as a non-Christian, from verse 1, he says you were born dead in your sins. You were not half dead. You were fully dead. And what can a man do? Uh, well, imagine that good Samaritan. Imagine if he came to this half-dead person and said, I'll just sit here and talk to you for a little while. Um, while you're dying, I'll just keep you company. And I'd like to tell you a few things. You can get better, you know. What you need to do is get up and start walking. And then what you need to do is recognize the fact that you've been robbed of everything, so go to a bank and ask for a loan. And then after you get your loan, you go to the local inn and give them money and tell them, uh, can you please make me better? And in fact, if you go short of money while you're making me better, don't worry, I'll get up and I'll go to the bank again and get another loan and I'll come back. These banks are friendly people. They're very good at giving loans. How would you rate the Samaritan's love if that's what he did for the half-dead man? Folks, God doesn't just give you information about salvation. God doesn't give you an opportunity to be saved. God comes and invades the life of a sinner with no knocking. And he comes in and takes possession. And he violently turns someone who is totally turning the wrong way and turns them to be children of God who love him and will follow him. That word saved, I said in the last couple of weeks, I can't remember when, was in the perfect tense. It implies that there is something that was done in the past. That's true. But it has current implications. It has ongoing ramifications. It goes into the future. And so we can rightly say, I was saved in the past. I was saved in 1979. Uh, but, but I am being saved today. And currently from the sins that I continue to commit even today. And I will be completely saved in the future. God's saving work is not just an experience or some decision that I randomly made years ago. Nor is it something just for the future that will come one day and transform me magically in the last day. Uh, it is both those things. 
but it is something we also experience now. Today, if you are truly saved, you are currently experiencing the power of God working in you to turn you from sins even today and to turn you to him. And if that working is happening in you today, folks, it will be a salvation that is complete in the future. There is no doubt if you are saved now, you will always be saved. The third point and the final point from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We can be sure we are saved because we are God's handiwork. Now once again, just to make sure no one accuses me after, at morning tea because it's lunch actually, isn't it? And uh, it gives you more chance to find mistakes. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. Uh, Paul concludes in Romans 3.28, he says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In Galatians 2.16, he goes on, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Luther put it this way, No man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers. It's totally beyond his own devices. It's beyond his endeavors, his will, and his works. Until he realizes that salvation depends entirely on the choice of another, on the will and the work of another, namely of God alone, then he comes close to grace. And then he can be saved. And I want to make it clear before we start talking about works that not a single one of us will be saved by what we do. We don't do things to become Christians. We're saved because of what God does to us and in us. But Paul has been like almost in overdrive, painstakingly emphasizing this. He repeatedly argues, we cannot do anything. Our hope is only in God. God has to do everything in our salvation from beginning to end. We can't even boast about our faith. Even our faith is a gift of God. He works it in us. It's a radical work. It's a supernatural work. We can't explain it. We can come to church. We can sing the songs. We can pray a prayer or say amen at the end of what we think is mumbo jumbo and then even during the preaching we can have a good little nap but, but we're not a Christian until God supernaturally works in us and if we think we can actually do junk all we're going to do is do a whole lot of stuff and exhaust ourselves into frustration Martin Lloyd-Jones says this we ought to see ourselves in this light, he says. We, we are not to see ourselves as someone who makes an effort to come to God, whilst God will work that in us, 
We should see ourselves totally as a work of God. The problem is not that we even consider this. The problem is that most days we wake up in the morning and we never think that we are a work of God. We wake up some mornings and we think of one random good deed we did in 1921 or something like that, depending on how old you are. And, and we think, oh, I did something good. I must be good. I must be a good Christian. But, but Paul's making it so clear. You're bad. You're very bad. And even when you do something good, you do it for bad reasons or you'll boast about it and make it bad. You see, we can only do good works if God supernaturally intervenes. He has to make us alive. He has to grant us faith. He has to work in us even the good works that we do. And he tells us in Ephesians 2 that he does that. And he's ordained to do that. He has ordered it that it must happen. He has planned, in fact, to do that through us. And he did this before we were born. He did this before we were made. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we don't make ourselves good by doing good things. We do not make ourselves Christians. If you're a Christian, then you are someone that God is making. If you're a Christian, well then you're not the active element. God is the worker. He is the workman. You are just the matter that he's working upon. And Martin Lloyd-Jones asks the question, he says, do you see yourself as clay? Do you see yourself as clay and God as the potter? Or do you wake up in the morning and think, I've made it in church. I got here and God should be pleased. I'm doing him a favour. Uh, once again, uh, Lloyd-Jones, he says, I, I want you to picture God in this massive workshop. A and picture this massive manufacturing site. Uh, you are just one little project in the corner. You are just one little part of this huge workshop that God is molding and working and constantly cutting off the sharp edges and the rough spots are being smoothed and you're just one part being working on. There are actually hundreds like you in this workshop. You can look around the workshop and you'll see hundreds of them just like you being worked upon because God is not only saving you as an individual but he's actually bringing about the church. He's producing his church. You see he says for we we, plural, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And there's that word created, which comes obviously, which is our word creation. And we're supposed to bring Genesis 1 back into our memory, aren't we? When God made something out of nothing. When God spoke the word, 
and, and everything was formed except for Adam. And then Adam didn't really come up any better. It was just dust that Adam was taken from and he was, life was breathed into him. And with this in mind, uh, Paul is saying to you, your spiritual life is like that. Um, you were like dust and God had to breathe life into you. You had zero interest in God and you needed God to turn you around. And the question again is, is has this happened to you? Uh, or are you hanging your hat on the fact that you're a member of this church? You're saying, well, I'm a member of the church, so I must be a Christian. You're pinning your hopes on the fact that you turn up here once a week. It's worth nothing if you're not a Christian. You think, I must be a Christian because I'm nice. I'm nice to my grandkids and I'm nice to my, well, maybe not my kids, but at least my grandkids. <laughs> you see, we're not Christians because we're just nice to people. It's because of something that God has done in us. It's because something that God does to us. We are his creation. And if we are his, Christian, his creation, then we will behave in a manner that is pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And how new, you might be asking. What's new about a Christian life? Well, like a newborn baby, you will be crying for milk. You'll be hungering for the Bible. You will want to read the Bible. This will be your experience. You will hunger for preaching, for Bible study. You will listen with intent. You will listen with the view that you will be convicted of your sin and that your minds will be enlightened and that your hearts will be enlarged and that you'll be warmed in love towards God. And then you know, once God has done that in you, you will walk in his ways. Your speech will change. Your talk will change. You'll actually think, I don't mind getting one of those boxes because I don't know who's at the other end, but I trust it'll bring glory to God because that's all I'm really interested in. This is radical. It, it will change not just the way we think, it'll change our plans. Our plans will be all around God and around his people. All because we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. Let me read verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Folks, I need to ask again, is this you? And if it is you, and if God has started a creative work in you, well, you can't uncreate a work of God. If God has begun a good work in you, you can be rest assured he will complete it until the end, until the day of Jesus Christ. We can be sure we are saved if we're God's handiwork. Let's pray. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for your word. We thank you again for your spirit. And we cry out again that you would make this word effective in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. 